0: Hi, and welcome to the Renovate podcast. My name is Robert Newberry, and I'm on staff here with Renovate, which is a ministry in Fort Worth, Texas for young adults. This week, we're going to hear a sermon on the book of Habakkuk and our perspective during suffering. We hope you enjoy
1: And I am excited about tonight. Uh, we are in the minor prophets. We've been off and on going all the way through all 12 minor prophets. They're the last 12 books in the Old Testament. We are in Habakkuk tonight. And uh, I know you guys love Habakkuk. Uh, uh, I'm, I am genuinely excited. And I think I say that every week. Like if you went back and like listened to the podcast, I feel like every time I say I'm excited, usually I'm lying uh tonight though i 'm actually genuinely excited uh, not like those other times uh, and here 's why for me uh this book so let me let me back up my uh f- kind of faith story, however whatever non cheesy way to say that is, like that in my life um, there was this big turning point when I was kind of that that first year out of high school. I didn't go straight to college. I became a bum, and I was a bum for about a year. I was a bum for multiple years, but this, this one year, I was really a bum. And, uh, and during that year, I was like 18, 19 years old. Uh, I really, I grew up, you guys might not be like me, but me, I grew up in a Christian home. So, like, I was in church all the time, and I was taught all the right answers to the biblical things and all the, the right things about Jesus is the answer to this question. And, Holy Spirit. like, I just knew all of the churchy stuff um, and was a part of that. And my family was legit, and they loved the Lord, and they, they meant it, and they lived it. And it was awesome. I uh, praise God for that. Um, but because of that, I never really asked a lot of questions. Um, and I never had, I never had really gotten to a place, um, where I doubted a whole bunch just because, well, this is the way mom and dad kind of told me it was. Um, and when I was about 18 or 19 years old, I remember I just, I kind of hit this wall of questions, uh, that I had never asked. And I remember specifically this thought, uh, I was, you know, just interacting with all these kind of people outside the little Christian bubble that I was raised in. I remember meeting people and just being like, how convenient, like how convenient that, the one way to God, Jesus, just happened so coincidentally to be the way I was raised and indoctrinated and the Kool Aid I drank from a young age. Like, just how convenient is that? And that these other people that grew up in different ways. And I just remember thinking, what? Do I really believe this? Do I really believe Jesus is who he said he was and rose from the dead? And really ask hard questions, but I think really good questions. It was fundamental for me to actually know and know Jesus and have a foundation of faith because I ask questions and I got really, really good answers, uh, which we don't have time for all of tonight. But there's one specific question that I wrestle with that a lot of people wrestle with, um, and it's not an easy question. Um, And that's the question of if God is sovereign and he's in control of all things, and he's in control, and yet simultaneously this sovereign God who's in control of the world, we look at the world And there is brokenness everywhere. And there is not just brokenness everywhere, there is evil. And there is horrible things happening to people um, and, and atrocities happening, and, and awful things on a global scale that are happening throughout our world, and yet I believe in this God that's in control. He's all-powerful. He's supposed to be all-loving, and yet there are these very awful things to happen. How can I justify those two things? How can there be a good God in control with so much evil? And I think even you have experienced things like that in your life. I know there are people in this room who have lived horrible. The atrocities are not just things you watch on the news. There are things that have happened to you that you've seen, that you've been a part of that have happened that you say, man, that was awful. Or people you know, or people you've been near, or loved ones, things that have happened to them. And, and you've asked that question, how can there be evil this much? How can there be these awful things Um, even if I take it down a couple notches, just the things that we ask for and want. God, I'm doing everything right. You're in control. You are my good, good father. Why am I not being given this good thing? I know people who are in their singleness, and man, they love the Lord, and they're so faithful in it, and they're so uh, they're following Jesus in it. And they, I think, legitimately ask this question of why God c- will you not give me this good thing when I'm doing what you ask me to do? And yet, these people get to step into marriage, and I'm trying to do it right, and I don't. Um, and there is a scale of discontentment that I think is a real legitimate question, whether it has to do with dating, whether it has to do with God, are you ever going to give me clarity on my job or my vocation or where you're calling me? Why are you not giving me an open door and someone else you are? All the way that scale to horrible, horrible pain and evil that's happened. And I think it brings up the question, man, what do we do with that? What do we do with a God in control that allows that stuff? That is the question that this prophet Habakkuk in the southern kingdom of Israel Um, ask. In Judah, he asked the question before God, why do you allow this to happen? And God answers him. And so that is why I'm excited about tonight. Uh, I think it is good. I think it is the word of God. So I trust it and I believe it. Uh, But I also think it's something really sensitive to preach uh, because this is what his answer is. This is what God's answer is uh, to that question. And I think it's going to take... I think it's going to take the Holy Spirit to be able to have actual ears to hear that. So um, I'm going to pray one more time. Not that Brett's prayer wasn't good enough. It was, it was pretty good. Uh, but I'm going, to pray, I'm going to pray one more time, really just for me, honestly, to get out of the way. Because uh, tonight is not, and hopefully none of these nights are ever about the musician or the speaker. Um, but man, really me get out of the way and letting the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do with this book that he inspired and wrote and what he has for you guys. So let me pray one more time for you. Father, you speak. Father, you speak to us. In the name of Jesus, God, you know where we're at. You know the questions we ask. You know the discontentment in our hearts. You know the pain in our hearts and the suffering in our hearts. Um, God, we come eager to hear what your word says. But Lord, we know we don't just need information. We need you. So Holy Spirit, reveal more of the Father to us tonight when we approach you because of the power of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, do this. Would I get out of the way, and would you communicate boldly and clearly to your kids what you would have for them? In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so Habakkuk. Um, It's in the Bible somewhere uh, near the back of the Old Testament. We're going to throw up a lot of slides on the screen. Um, I really want to challenge you guys, man, as we're going through the Old Testaments, to read them. Habakkuk is three chapters long. And so, um, man, be reading Habakkuk and be, uh, be walking along with us and, and studying this with us. Next week is Zephaniah. Uh, and so, man, maybe this week spend some time in Zephaniah, and then next Wednesday we're going to unpack it and see what God has for us. But I, I really want to challenge you to not just show up here, but really continue to be in the Word of God, not just kind of waiting for us to unpack it, because uh, God's going to do way more throughout the week than we will in a 30-minute sermon. So <clears throat> here we go, Habakkuk. Uh, here's what I want to do. I want to unpack the book for you. Uh, it, it, it's three chapters, and it actually breaks down in three pretty clear parts. And so I just want to unpack, man, here's what's happening, give you the context, um, and then it's going to be real cool how even the third chapter, Habakkuk, just starts to apply the answer that God's given him. So then we'll say, okay, how does this make sense for us today? What do we do with this? How do we walk out of here with this? So that's what we're doing. So uh, there's three parts. So part one of Habakkuk uh, is chapter one, verses two through four. And it's Habakkuk's first complaint, right? So this is a conversation between this prophet and the God of the universe with these complaints, with these questions he has. And so uh, let me read verses two through four for you up here. And this is his first complaint. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arrive arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Um, he, here's what he's saying. He's saying... God, in his first complaint, why do you allow evil and suffering? What kind of a God? In Israel, within Israel, there was all kinds of debauchery and sin and evil and suffering happening within the nation, within God's people, there was all this sin happening. I mean, Israelites and sinning against other Israelites, and it, was, it had become this place where they had lost sight of their God. Uh, they had lost sight of being obedient to God, and they were living uh, awful lives, hurting other people, stealing from from poor people, uh, and it had become a really a, a nation kind of with its middle finger to the Lord in a lot of ways. <clears throat> then God answers. So the second part of of this is God answers. And so look at chapter one, verses five through 11, and I'm just gonna read his answer because it's good and it's powerful and it's way better than what I could say. Here's verses five through 11. Here's the Lord's answer. "'Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told.'" They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Here's God's answer. God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint of Israel has gotten out of hand. There is evil. There is brokenness here. God, what are you going to do about it? God's answer is he will bring justice and judgment. He will bring justice and judgment to the people of Israel. But here's the catch. He is going to bring about justice and judgment to God's people through the nation of Babylon. So what he's saying in verses 5 through 11 is he's saying, yep, I see the wickedness. I see the wickedness, I see the sin, I see the disobedience, I see how evil people are to each other. Your neighbors are to each other. I am going to bring Babylon to punish and discipline Israel. That's what he's saying here. It would be like, um, well, let me look at Habakkuk's next uh, complaint, which I think would be a, I think be a pretty logical complaint Um, if, if I said, hey, God, there's a lot of evil in my neighborhood, and then God said, yeah, I see that evil. Your neighbors are stealing from neighbors and hurting each other and killing each other. Your neighborhood's really evil. I'm going to raise up a cell from ISIS within the United States, and they're going to wipe out your neighborhood. I think my next complaint would be, what the heck? Right? That would be my next complaint, which is where Habakkuk goes. So part two is Habakkuk's second complaint and God's answer. And it is verses 12 through the very first verse of chapter 2. I just want to read a little section of what he says at the end of 12 and then verse 13. He says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. We're talking about this wicked nation that's going to come in. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? So he's Habakkuk is literally saying, what in the world? You are taking, I'm sorry I complained about Israel, but you are now taking an evil nation, a pagan-worshipping nation, They don't know God, they don't love God, they don't worship God, they worship pagan gods and they're murderers. And you are going to raise them up and give them victory to wipe out Israel and grab the the southern kingdom of, of God's people and drag them, those who they don't murder, drag them into captivity. That's your plan. Why would you allow that kind of suffering, God? Why would you do that? That seems kind of drastic. Here's God's answer. Here's where I want to spend most of the time on the sermon. Um, This book does some really cool stuff. So what happens is the beginning of chapter, really all of chapter 2, starting in verse 2, but really through the rest of chapter 2, there's about 18 verses there that God answers that question. He really answers it deeply, and it's a a long answer. Um, And he gives all these illustrations for what his justice is going to look like and why his justice is valuable. Um, But he gives, buried within these illustrations, three huge theological truths, big theological truths of who he is. In his answer, he starts to define these huge theological truths for Habakkuk to hear and receive. And so throughout chapter 2, I want to pull these three theological truths that are God's answer to that question of why would you allow that suffering to happen? The the first one is in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, and it is not upright within him but the righteous shall live by faith. And so the first theological truth that that Habakkuk hears back from God is this idea that the righteous need to live by faith in their God. The righteous, those who would be right with God, God is telling them they live by faith in me, Um, he, he juxtaposes this, these two things in verse 4. He juxtaposes this idea of people who are puffed up and then those who are right with God and who are walking righteously, who are walking with God. And to be righteous is, uh, is a goal of what we desire as a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ. Um, and being righteous is not just doing rules. It's, it's to be loving our Father God in a way that puts us in a right relationship with God, which we'll unpack exactly how that happens here in a second. But... One of those ways is by putting our faith in him. So something here that strikes me is that uh, so often I think about, okay, how do I have more faith? Right? If, if part of the answer that God responds is the righteous live by faith in, in verse 4, chapter 2. If he answers, okay, the righteous need to live by faith, then so often, if you're anything like me, you think, okay, I just need more faith. Like I just need to find some mystical power to have more faith. So the things that I'm frustrated with, the things that are hurting in my life, the things that are, I'm discontent with, I need to somehow muster up uh, some, some magical faith power to be able to just believe and, and take steps forward. And I think of faith so often as just I need to add to, right? I need to just add to my faith. And I really want to challenge us uh, tonight that, that maybe this is not just about adding more faith, but it's also about repenting from things that drain our faith. And here's what I mean by that. So often my lack of faith is not just um, to be seen as a prayer request to say, give me more faith. So often my lack of faith, when I'm staring at God and he's asking me to do something hard or he's taken me through something hard or I am sitting in something currently that is difficult and I'm asking him and I'm saying, Lord, what in the world? And I think I need more faith. So often it's not just about me adding. It's about me looking and realizing there are things that I'm doing in my life that are draining my faith. Those for me are my desire to be in control and my misplaced fear. My desire to be in control as opposed to God being in control is what drains my faith, right? It is counter- to my faith in God. Instead, it's like, no, 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 I want to be in control. I don't want to let go. I don't want to surrender this to you. I want to be in control. I want to be my own God. I want to sit on the throne of my own life and make the decisions for my life based on what I want to do. Or a misplaced fear of, I care more about this. I'm more afraid of what other people will think about me than what God says. And I have misplaced fear in my life it plays out in relationships all the time. Um, there are people who will get in relationships that are not healthy, right? They're not healthy, uh, whether from the girl's side or the guy's side, it's, it becomes a toxic thing. It's not glorifying to God. It's not healthy. It's not. It's not righteous. And yet, because of a fear of, man, maybe this is the best I could do, a fear of, I don't want to be alone, so I'm going to settle and I'm... I don't want to be alone, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to continue in this unhealthy relationship, or I'm not going to speak up, or I'm not going to try to seek repentance and give away control, because what if this is the best it's going to get, and I don't, and that, that fear so often cripples us, or even a control on the other side. I I know uh, guys in my life, and I love them, but at times, man, a lack of control, right, keeps them from being able to make steps to move forward in relationships, I got a good buddy who I love to death, and I grew up with him, uh, went to high school with him, and, uh, and, and he has gone through one relationship after the other because to take another step of commitment uh, scares him because he's going to have to give up control. Uh, and I've seen that become this toxic thing of man, who is going to be in control in your life. God lays out this principle, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's not knowing, but still taking that step. This conviction of the things not seen to be able to trust. It's really important that we hear that big principle, that we have faith. Now here's the second principle. They're all going to tie together because the word of God's incredible. His second principle principle that God lays out as like this big overarching theme in his response is in verse 14. He says this. He says, "For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." God says, "Have faith. The righteous will live by faith." And then so and he so encouragingly follows that up by saying, "There is a future day where you will know and understand." There is a future day Mitchell talked about it when he was shamelessly plugging his album for 10 minutes. Um, just kidding. That album is awesome. You definitely should get it. Uh, and he'll sign, he'll sign it, too, for $5. Um, but there is, a, there is a day coming. There is a day coming when we will know and understand. There will be a day where all of the world will be filled with his knowledge and glory as the Lord, as the waters cover the sea, is how we will know and understand. There is this already, not yet, this longing that we are sitting in of God's promises and there's this, there are these questions that we have and yet God says, hey, one day we will know. And I love that as God asks us to let go and trust him, as God says, the righteous will live by faith, he simultaneously follows that up by saying, With such comfort, there is a day coming where you will see and you will understand. That is coming. Do we believe him when he says that? Is he trustworthy when he says that? Uh, My kids, uh, I've got a two and a half year old and a five year and a half year old. They're awesome. I love them. Uh, They are fools, guys. They are fools. Uh, I have an ongoing argument with my five and a half year old, and this is, sounds stupid. It is stupid. Um, we have an ongoing argument of what is faster: a peregrine falcon or a pigeon. <laughs> All right, raise your hand. I really can't see you because the lights, but I'm just for the sake of this argument. Raise your hand if you think the peregrine falcon is faster than the pigeon. Okay, good, good. You're correct. Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask pigeon people to raise their hand because that would be super embarrassing. A peregrine falcon is a really fast bird, and yet my son saw some cartoon where a pigeon bested a peregrine falcon, and because of that, we have an ongoing debate, like it keeps us up at night, and Danielle, my wife, kind of is like, just let it go, honey, and I'm like, but he's wrong, and he's foolish, like I have to teach my son to not be such a fool. Uh, He doesn't understand, like, there's just so much, right? There's so much that my five-and-a-half-year-old just doesn't understand, right? And he's a pretty smart kid, but he's a five and a half. My two and a half year old, so much that he does not understand, right? Like he just, he doesn't understand that you can't drink bubble mix, right? There's all (laughs) kinds of things on a whole different level. Not to be arrogant. I think I can make this statement without coming across as a, as just this arrogant guy. I have way more perspective and wisdom in life than my kids, I have seen, I have drank in bubble mix and I know what happens, right? (laughs) I have, I have um, just, I have more perspective. My wife and I know better. We see from a wider, broader perspective that my kids don't. So my kids have questions and my kids have curiosities and my kids have complaints that they don't know the bigger picture. My kids are, are, they live in the immediate gratification. Right? like They live in an immediate gratification of what they want. If you were in my house ever for longer than an hour, you will probably hear my kids ask for a snack, right? Because they want a snack just about every 60 to 67 minutes of their life. It's like, can I have a snack? Um, they live in that world, and, and we have to parent them in a way that has a bigger picture. So my kid doesn't have diabetes by age eight. I can't give him chocolate every snack. Um, we have a bigger and broader perspective. God is saying one day we will know. One day the world will be filled with that knowledge of who God is and how it works and his glory, like the seas and the ocean. And he has a broader perspective. And if we believe that this God created the heavens and the earth and sustains all things and knit the atoms together together, in my mother's womb to give me life and has breathed life into us and is doing what he's doing in this world, then I have to believe that he knows better than I do. He has a broader perspective than I do. So I look at verses like Kabatah 2.14 and I think this isn't just trite encouragement. It's just truth. Look at the third, third thing, and this will be quick. He says this. He says in verse 20, the very last verse in chapter 2, but the Lord is in his holy temple. This is kind of how he ends his answer to Habakkuk's question. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Um, The righteous live by faith, guys. There will be a day when we know and understand And in the meantime, we trust him. We're being asked by God through these principles in chapter two. Have faith, there will be a day where you will know. And until that day, trust him. This idea in verse 20 of be silenced before God, it's not a it's not a don't ask God this question. It's not a how dare you silence. Um, it's not an angered silence. The fact that the God of the universe, and he does it in this book, he does it, I think, kind of almost more popularly in some way if you've ever heard or read the book Job. You know, it's kind of this conversation before this God and, and, and this guy named Job and, and they go back and forth. And I think God is so compassionate. The God who defines justice. Things are just and right and holy and good because he is the one who defines them. If he does it, He is our definition for those things. And yet, I want to be the definition. I want to decide, well, wait a second, that doesn't look good, and this isn't how I wanted it, and this isn't what I wanted for my life, and that doesn't seem fair over here. And I'm I'm with my narrow perspective, and I have a God who isn't afraid of those questions. I have a God who seemingly all throughout Scripture is not threatened by those, whether it's Job or whether it's Habakkuk or whether it's Peter before Jesus asking those questions. We have a God who compassionately hears that. So I want you to hear that silence, not as the idea of, hey, don't ask hard questions. Ask hard questions. I think think God is the answer of hard questions. Ask them. But then have ears to hear an answer that maybe is deeper than, than you expected. I think this is that. I think this is an answer that's deeper than my logic it's deeper than my narrow perspective of understanding. It's deeper than my definition of fairness. Silence before him is gonna be trust. I'm no longer making my case because my silence is is signifying that, okay, I trust you. I ask, you respond, and I trust you. Um, Habakkuk, there's one more part of this book, and that's chapter three, part three. So part one and two are questions, answer, question, God's response. And then chapter three, I love this, and this is, this is what we're going to spend the rest of the time on, um, kind of land on, is this idea of um, God showing up, answering, and Habakkuk applies this answer. He takes these three huge principles that God tells him about have faith, know that there's a day that's coming when all will understand and, and be silent and trust before me, and he applies them. And so chapter three is Habakkuk's response to God's answer, and I want it. It isn't always, but I want it to be my answer. I want this to be my response to how God answers my hard questions. I don't, I don't know that it always is, but I love what Habakkuk does, and here's what he says. Um, he, ver- he first starts with um, just this idea that he will rest Look at chapter 3, verse 16. He will rest in that. He says, I hear and my body trembles. This is not a great answer. This is not a fun answer. Babylonians are coming to wipe out his people. This is God's answer. And he says, yes, I hear and my body trembles and my lip quivers at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And then look what he says. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will quietly, there's that concept again. I will quietly wait before you. I will go before you with my complaint, hear your answer, and I will be silent before you. I will rest in that. Um, I think that is a really hard thing um, to define for us that this waiting before God, uh, this waiting before God is this really powerful picture of rest. Uh, One of the ways that looks like, I can at least say one of the ways that looks like for my wife is it looks like waking up before our kids wake up uh, to open up her Bible and her journal uh, in the mornings. And our kids wake up early. And it's her sacrificing that sleep to go before the Lord, to wait before him, to know him. Uh, For me, uh, I, I got to have a little bit of Jesus time in the morning, but I am a nighttime Jesus guy. My wheels are spinning. I got all these things. I got all these man-made strategies in my head, and before I go to bed, I've got to go before him, and I've got to rest and wait before him. <clears throat> um, during the course of a week, it looks like, as we're commanded to take a day in the midst of striving and doing and working and, and taking a day and saying, God, you are more important than this. and I'm going to wait before you for a day. That doesn't necessarily mean meditating in a park for a day, but it means letting go of your schedule for a day, prioritizing God for a day. Can I be super honest? <laughs> I am really bad at that. And I, I'm not, I need a lot of growth and maturity in that. I'm not great at this application of rest in God. Hear his answer of how he's working and rest in him. And I'm, I'm bad at it. I'd love to say I'm bad at it because I'm just such a hard worker. You know, and I just want to do so much for God. I'm bad at it because I am a sinner who wants to be in control. That's why I'm bad at it. I'm bad at it because I'm a sinner who wants to stay in control. I'm I'm bad at it because I'm someone who cares more about people-pleasing than sitting and waiting before the Lord. And so I would much rather not stop and be still before the Lord because there might be people I can juggle and impress and make balloon animals for, right? Like, I am bad at it because of a core issue of sin. And that, I, I look at that and I said, okay, there needs to be repentance on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, what does rest look like for you? Are you resting and waiting before the Lord? Look at the other way that Habakkuk applies it. And it's how he ends this chapter. Um, in, in 16, he kind of gives this idea of he will wait. And then look at verse 18. Verse 18 he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. His response to God's answer of his people being wiped out in verse in verse 18 is: I will rejoice rejoice. We're called to rejoice, not because of our circumstances, but despite our circumstances. Um, I've told the story before, um, but one of the sweetest uh, worship services moments I've ever been a part of was um, right after Danielle and I had our second miscarriage. We had two miscarriages, um, and, and they were both really difficult, it was just really difficult because we, you know, we praying for this baby, and we loved these babies, and, uh, and we lost one, and we were devastated. And about a year later, a year or so later, we got pregnant again. We we're like, man, God is good, and we're, you know, we're praying for this baby, and, and we've got a God who's in control, and we've got a God who gives good gifts to his people, uh, and we're walking close to him. And then the baby dies, uh, and we, we have a miscarriage. And I remember that Sunday, uh, I don't even know why I was there, but I was standing in the back of the den, and it was a high school worship service, and I don't even know why I was in that room. Um, But I remember just worshiping Jesus despite my circumstances because my worship wasn't based on my circumstances. My worship was based on God saying, I'm still in control, and you don't understand why, and you don't know why, and my ways are higher than your ways but I'm still in control and I'm still good and I'm still worthy of worship. And that was not because I was just a, had learned the right answers and knew I was supposed to be worshipful in the midst of hard circumstances. It was because the Holy Spirit produces peace beyond understanding and produces worship at heart when we put our faith in Jesus. And the way we're able to get to that place, the way you're able to get to that place is you ask, is he enough? I remember parked in the driveway after, you know, Danielle and I had kind of heard this news and we were wrestling with this idea of, man, we've got, had a, another miscarriage and what if we never have a baby and what if all of these things and all of these discouragements and all of these discontentments and all of these complaints, then we just had to ask the question of, is he still good? Like, is he still good? Is our definition of God based on our circumstances or is he defined what is good and is he still worthy and is he enough for us? Would he still be enough I need the Holy Spirit in me to answer that question in the affirmative. I need it. You need it. You can't just answer that question and say, well, he's supposed to be yes. And you need the Holy Spirit. And if you're in this room and you have not ever fully put your faith in Christ, I love that you're here. I love that you're hearing this. But man, all of this truth of this crazy understanding of how we navigate such hard things will not work without the Holy Spirit. And you will not have the Holy Spirit until you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. I love you. I love that you're here. And you might be religious and you might have good answers, and you might have served in the church and done great things, but if you have never looked at Jesus and said, that is where my faith is. I cannot earn this. I cannot be righteous on my own. My righteousness can only be found in Christ. And then as Paul said, my life is no longer my own. It's Christ and surrendered your life and we don't have the Holy Spirit. Then you don't have the Holy Spirit. And yet that is available. That is absolutely available. We cannot answer that. I cannot turn my sorrow into worship without the Holy Spirit. I can fake it, I can suppress, I can push down feelings, I can manipulate my emotions. but I cannot rejoice like Habakkuk does without it. And here's the last thing. He relies. I didn't mean for these to all have R's. I apologize for that, actually. He relies on God. Look at verse 19. The last verse of the, the whole book. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This was a song. Chapter three was a song that Habakkuk is singing in response to a really heavy answer to a really important hard question. And he says, I'm going to rely. I'm going to rely. I'm going to have my feet on you and your foundation. I'm going to rely on you going to trust you. We, we rely on Jesus. We trust Jesus. People who give money and tithe to the church, they don't give money and tithe to a church because that's the right thing to do. Well, some people might, but that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is to say, God, I trust you more than I trust my bank account. So Lord, here have the first fruits of my paycheck, right? People who, who really desire to be, um, to be loved, right? Uh, they might people please, a lot. It's a, it's a tendency of mine. And instead of people pleasing a lot, I might say, you know what, to rely on you is to not make people pleasing my constant ambition. But instead to say, you know what, it's okay. It's okay that I don't have those friends. It's okay if those people don't like me. It's okay to not be loved by everyone. There's all kinds of ways that I find in my life that I'm not relying. And there's all kinds of ways that I then get to say, Lord, would I rely on you? Would I rely on you? Would I rest in you? Would I prioritize you? What am I relying on? Am I relying on my own gifts? Am I relying on my own career? Am I relying on my own popularity? Am I relying on my own self-sufficiency to get me through? Or do I trust him and can I rely on him? So why? So here's here's what I want to do to end. Um, I think Habakkuk does this 180 with us. We ask the question, why would God do that? beginning of the sermon, we ask this question and say, God, why would you do that? Why aren't you doing that? Whatever the discontentment is in your heart. And we ask this question when we're discontent. And I, and I don't blame you for it. I do it. We do it. But what happens in this book is Habakkuk says, that's not the question. God says, the question is, do you trust me? So we go before God and we say, why? And his answer is do you trust me? Do you trust me? Would that be the question I ask? When I find that discontentment, I turn and I say, okay, the question is not why would you do this? The question is, do I trust you? And how I know if I'm trusting him as opposed to just, well, yeah, I think I trust him. No, I I go deeper. I say, am I resting? What's that look like? Are you resting in him or are you striving? Are you rejoicing or are you worshiping despite your circumstances? Are you worshiping despite your circumstances and rejoicing or are you finding your circumstances define your emotions and then are you relying? Is he enough? Man, would the Holy Spirit take this truth that can't be understood just by us. It doesn't fit our logic and say, Lord, we trust you. It's gotta be the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this truth. Uh, Thank you for... Being a God who loves us, being a God who can answer this question, who will hear his creation with our limited perspective, ask these questions before a holy and perfect God, and you will hear them and you will compassionately answer Yes, but do you trust me? Will you have faith? Will you wait for the answer? Lord, would you turn, for brothers and sisters of mine in this room, would you turn sorrow into rejoicing in a way that only you can do tonight? Uh, would, you, would you produce repentance and change in our lives for those who, who so struggle with resting in you and instead we want to do and we want to strive and we want to create and we don't want to stop and we don't want to let go. How would you change and bring about repentance for that sin. And God, would we rely on you, God? Would we be people who trust you and rely on you with our life and would our actions in our life show that we do and the areas that we find that we've taken back into our own hands and clenched and we don't want to let go of, Lord, would you pry them from our hands because you are good and because you are worthy? Um, God, we try to make sense and make this all happen We want to lean on our understanding, but Father, we know we know we need to lean on you. And so, Lord, would you do in this time of response what Habakkuk was able to do? Would you transform our hearts to be able to respond tonight to the hard questions that we have and say, yes, we trust you, God. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
0: One thing that I noticed from this book is the fact that we can trust the Lord in the middle of our suffering. How many times do we have something really hard going on in our lives and think if we just knew why it was happening, it would all make sense? But there are times where we don't get that answer. So can we still trust God in the unknown? Can we trust him to be good, to be faithful, and to just be with us through all of the hardship? We know that isn't easy. We know it doesn't come naturally. So if you need help figuring out where to start, reach out to us at renovateftw.org, or on social media, at RenovateFTW, and we would love to sit down with you and hear about what's going on. We hope you've enjoyed hearing this message, and we hope to see you again next week.